بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله This is lesson 88. Alhamdulillah. So, in our last class, we were talking about the Ghazwa of Banu Mustaliq. And we said that this was in the fifth year after the Hijrah. And in this Ghazwa, the Prophet ﷺ journeyed with 700 of the Muslims to this area that is south of Medina but north of Mecca called Al-Muraysi'ah and the Ghazwa is given two names the Ghazwa of Al-Muraysi'ah or the Ghazwa of Banu Mustaliq because the name of the tribe is Mustaliq and the name of the area is Al-Muraysi'ah and we told the story about how the battle ensued and how it was a relatively minor battle in the big picture, comparing it to Uhud and Badr and Khandaq. However, there were momentous things that happened as a direct result of this Ghazwa. One of them we talked about last week, which was the conversion and then marriage of Juwayriya bint al-Harith radiallahu anha, converting to Islam and getting married to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and then her father coming after the battle to Medina and being moved and converting and all of the tribesmen being released and the whole tribe becoming Muslim. That was a momentous event. And there's another momentous event that took place in connection with this Ghazwa of Banu Mustaliq. And we're going to talk about that event today as well as next week inshallah. And we're just using a single hadith to talk about this. And we have to spread it across two weeks because it's a very lengthy hadith. And this hadith is discussed in the books of Sirah. And the incident is known as Haditatul Ifk. Haditha means the event, and the Ifk means slander. So, in some of the Sira works, they say that this incident, Haditatul Ifk, was the worst fitna ever perpetuated by the Munafiqun, the hypocrites. They say that out of all of the fitan of the Munafiqun, this one was the worst. And this was an incident that represents a very traumatic experience for not only the Prophet ﷺ, not only for his wife Sayyidah Aisha, but also for the entire community. And this is called Haditatul Ifk, and that literally means the incident of the slander. You know, the title itself is still very ambiguous. What slander? And that's purposeful. They never spelled out in exact words, the nature of the slander, out of respect, out of adab, not only for Sayyidah Aisha, who was exonerated, 
but out of honor and respect for her husband because it was such a hurtful experience. So let's look a little bit at that term. Haditha in modern Arabic usually means an accident or an incident, an occurrence, right? If you have any haditha sayara, right? Haditha murur, you have a car accident. And ifk is a slanderous lie. Now the word ifk is in the Quran in a couple of places, a few places actually. Uh, in one verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَجَاءَ فِرْعَوْنُ وَمَنْ قَبَلَهُ وَالْمُؤْتَفِكَاتُ بِالْخَاطِئَةِ He mentions that Fir'aun came, and then before him were others that were mu'tafikat, slanderers. What are they slandering? They're slandering Allah Ta'ala. They're claiming partners for Allah Ta'ala. They're claiming divinity for themselves. And this is called ifk. And the ones who perpetuated are mu'tafika. Likewise, we see Allah Ta'ala speaks about the people of Lut, alayhi salam, wal mu'tafikata ahwa. He describes them as mu'tafika, people of slander. Why are they called people of slander? Because what is an ifk? An ifk is a slanderous lie where you invert reality. You invert reality. If this person is good, they're slandered and called bad. So the reality is inverted. Why were the people of Lut called Mu'tafika, the slanderers? It's because they inverted the fitrah. The fitrah is one thing, and they inverted it in the direction of homosexuality. And this is an inversion of the fitrah. And we know that the punishment of Allah Ta'ala to the people of Lut was also inversion. It was the physical inversion of their homes and the raining of brimstone down upon them. And this is as the, the ulama say, al-jazab min jins al-amal, kama tudinu tudan. The reward or the, the consequence is commensurate with the crime. So that's the linguistic meaning of if a slanderous lie. And this story in the seerah is called Hadithatul Ifk, or the incident of the slander, because of Abdullah ibn Ubay bin Salul and some other people with sicknesses in their hearts who accused Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha of adultery. Where they don't spell it out, we spell it out for clarity. That was the nature of the slander. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about these people in Surah An-Nur, which is revealed in connection with this incident, Those who came with a slanderous lie are an usba from you. They're a small group from within the community, a small group from you. Now the benefit of this story, uh, beyond covering the history, beyond the seerah, is that it has many lessons for us. The seerah, as the scholars say, is a virtual blueprint for all of the possible scenarios the Muslim community can face until the Day of Judgment. This means that in any given community, here in North America or beyond, we have situations, challenges, problems, issues 
And we find within the seerah a blueprint of sorts where we find similar things have happened and we see responses to them. And this story is a very particular example of how communities deal with internal problems and slanders, rumors, and gossiping. Now, I want to mention something about the history Beyond, before we get to the story, and that is the history of how this narration has been handled. Hundreds of years ago, in Morocco, there was a royal decree, a royal decree, that the public readings of Sahih al-Bukhari must not read the hadith about Haritatul ifk That was a royal decree. The decree came from the king, that all of the mashayikh and scholars conducting public readings of Sahih al-Bukhari in the Masajid would read from the beginning to the end, but they skipped this hadith. And they only read the hadith in the private gatherings of ulama. That was a royal decree. And the reason why they, the, one of the kings made this decree is because they didn't want the story to be repeated, especially in a decontextualized way, to people who are coming and going in the masjid, who are many of whom are largely uneducated and don't necessarily have the tools to understand it. Maybe they don't even hear the entire story. So if they hear part of the story and then they leave, you know, they get ideas in their heads. So that was a, an ijtihad from that king. And they didn't want to publicly read some of those narrations. It wasn't just Sahih Bukhari in that hadith. They also issued a, pub, a royal decree that in the public readings of the Shifa of Qadr Iyad that they do not read publicly section 4 of the book which details the rulings of those who insult or disrespect or denigrate the Prophet And the reason why is because they didn't want the people to just get their ears used to hearing all of the, the many examples that Imam Qadr Iyad cited in the Shifa. Because it's enough to know the ruling. You know the ruling? Done. There's no need for the people to be subjected to hearing uh, dozens and dozens of actual quotations of disrespectful statements which are provided in the book as examples of disrespectful language. They didn't want the people to just have their ears used to hearing that, out of respect. So the Sultan of Morocco, Mawlay Abdullah bin Muhammad bin Abdullah bin Ismail al-Alawi, who died in the year 1203 after Hijrah, he ordered the, the Sheikh Tawud ibn Suda, who was the, the biggest scholar, the, the top-ranking alim in Morocco at the time, Tawud ibn Suda, he ordered him to avoid the public readings of this particular hadith uh, in Sahih al-Bukhari. And in his letter to him, he says, كذلك الذي يقرأ البخاري فحين يصل إلى حديث الإفك يتركه ولا يتعرض لقراءته قال وهذه المسائل التي نهينا عن قراءتها فمن تعرض لقراءتها ونال منا عقوبة على أيدينا فلا يلوم إلا نفسه لأن المسائل التي نهينا عن قراءتها لم يذكرها أحد من الأئمة المساند ولا تعرض لها انتهى بنصه so he says, and I'm quoting the royal decree that he gave to the scholar, Sheikh Tawudi bin Suda, he said, likewise, uh, 
when the person is reading Sahih Bukhari, when they reach the hadith of ifk, they skip it, they leave it. They don't uh, read it in the public gatherings. And he goes on to mention some other things. He says, if anyone does it and they get punished by me, then don't let them blame anyone but themselves. So this was something that that king deemed to be a fitting ruling based on his ijtihad. Now in this age, obviously, where everything is accessible and there's no reason to limit reading uh, and uh, anyone can find it, there's no reason to not read it. There's no reason not to study it. Uh, we read it with the proper context and we explain it. So inshallah, that's what we're going to do today. We'll read the first half. So the story is found in a hadith in Bukhari and Muslim and other collections. What we're going to do is read the words of Sayyida Aisha herself. She tells the story in her own words. We'll read the story, bits and pieces, and then we'll look at some of the benefits we can derive from it as we go through the entire story and then derive lessons. So she begins telling this whole story. And remember, this story is connected with the Ghazwa of Banu Mustaliq. This is the second momentous event that occurred in the aftermath of that battle. So she is recounting what happened. She says, whenever the Prophet ﷺ would intend to go on a journey, he would cast lots among his wives. So whoever's lot would be picked, she would accompany the Prophet ﷺ. You know what drawing lots is? It's kind of like coin toss. It's similar to a coin toss. It's not gambling. It's just a way of determining, you know, through chance, who would win something or have to do something or get something, right? So you see here how fairly and justly the Prophet ﷺ was towards his wives. He did not uh, arbitrarily favor one over the other in this determining who's going to go on the journey. He would have them draw lots. So it's not even a decision he's making himself. Whoever has the, you know, has the favorable outcome, then they go on the journey. And in this case, she was among those, among the two the, that uh, had, you could say, won that, and she was able to go on the journey. Uh, we also see here that he didn't do this all the time. He would do this for the battles and expeditions where he was fairly certain that there would be a favorable outcome and victory would be uh, certain, and there was not a great danger. If there was a great danger, he wouldn't take the wives on the journey. She goes on to say, so he cast these lots on one of these expeditions and my name came up. So I traveled with the Prophet ﷺ. This was after the verses pertaining to hijab were revealed. And therefore I would travel in my hawdaj and be carried in it. We remember from the previous class we talked about the verses of hijab were revealed before the ghazwa of Banu Mustaliq. So she says this is right after. So because this is right after those verses, she's traveling now in the Hawdaj. Does anyone know what a Hawdaj is? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the English word is. It's probably Hawdaj. It probably became anglicized. But if you see these old videos of people going for Hajj from the 1920s and 30s, you'll see people you know, going along on camels. And you have these large carriages on top of the camel. And they kind of wobble a little bit. And she would be inside of one of these. And it has curtains on all sides. So she's concealed from the sun and concealed from the gaze of other people. So she's inside there relaxing 
while she's on the camel. So she was in the Hodaj. I would travel in my Hodaj and be carried in it. She says, after the expedition had finished, Banu Mustalaq, and we were returning to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ gave orders to camp the night outside of Medina. And there's a lesson here too. It is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that he would not enter Medina at night. When he was returning from a journey, he would not enter at night. And he would advise people that when they are returning to Medina, that they do not return to their families at night. Rather, they return the next day. And in one narration, he says, return in the day and not the night. Do not scare the people of the household. So he would tell them to camp out somewhere uh, at that night of their arrival and then go the next day. Because the next day, what's going to happen? Think about it. It's a small town. The news of the arrival will spread and the family will know and they'll prepare things and get ready and they'll receive the husband or whoever. So that is the sunnah. She says, when the orders were given to encamp, and this is outside of Medina, I stood up and walked away from the army to relieve myself. When I returned, I felt my chest and lo and behold, my necklace. The hadith mentions a kind of stone. It's like quartz or onyx. It's not, it's not valuable. It's, it's basic, right? She says, and lo and behold, my necklace had broken and fallen. So I returned to where I had been to search for it. I was delayed in searching for it. And in the meantime, the people that were assigned to carry my hodaj had already placed it on top of the camel, presuming that I was back in it. Why would that happen? She was very light. She was very thin. And she explains this. She says, during those days, women were very thin and they had not put on a lot of weight. They used to only eat a few morsels of food. So the men did not question the lightness of the hodaj when they picked it up and put it on the camel. And on top of that, I was a young lady. So they sent the camel forward and I found my necklace after they had gone. By the time I returned to the caravan camping ground, there was not a single soul in sight. Right? Here's a few lessons you can get just from this. Number one, you see the simplicity of Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha. This necklace is not a diamond necklace. It's not a gold necklace. It doesn't have rubies or emeralds or anything really valuable. The narration mentions uh, something like quartz or onyx. It's not expensive at all. Yet, she is looking for it. You know, she's married to the person who had received the option to receive mountains turned into gold. But you see how simply they lived. But you also see the frugality of Sayyidah Aisha. She didn't drop the necklace and say, oh, it's just onyx or quartz. Eh, it's cheap, big deal. They still valued what they had. And that's why she went to go look for it. If it had been anyone else, maybe they would have said, you know, it's just a cheap necklace. Just a loss. Big deal. If it was a diamond necklace, maybe people would go looking for it. But here she's looking for it, even though it's not that expensive. So this is a lesson too in not wasting money, you know, not just trashing things that are not really expensive just if they lose their value or we don't use them necessarily. Uh, we also see a bit about the lifestyle 
of the early Muslims in Medina because she says that at that time the women of Medina were not heavy because they used to eat very few bites of food. They used to eat just a few morsels. And there's a subtlety here too because remember she's recounting the story and she's saying, well, they put the hodaj back on the camel and we were very light. We were very thin back then. We didn't have a lot of food. And I was a young lady. You know, what is she doing here? She's also making an excuse for those men who hoisted the hodaj back onto the camel. She didn't blame them. She didn't say, you know, they were negligent. They should have made sure. No, they are being modest. They're not peering inside to see who's inside of the hodaj, see if she's there or not. And they assume that she's inside of there, that she went back inside. But because she's so light, they didn't, they didn't really discern that she's not in there. So she's making an excuse for them. So you also see from this, making excuses for people when they make minor errors in judgment. You also see the modesty of the Sahaba and how they interacted with the mothers of the believers. They didn't even call out to her thinking that she's inside of the Hodaj. They didn't even speak to her much less open the curtain to make sure she's inside. They would never dare do something like that. So there's this modesty, and this modesty prevents them from even speaking with her or opening the curtain, and they just assume she's inside, and they put the, the hodaj back on top and assume, okay, she's there, let's go. And they're all resuming their journey back to Medina. So she's there looking for this necklace, she looks and looks and looks and she finds it eventually, but once she finds it and gets back to the camp, they're all gone. Now, if, if you get lost in the wilderness, there's one piece of advice you always receive. They say that if you ever get lost in the wilderness or lost somewhere, what should you do? Stay put. Why? Because if you're lost and you're going here and there and everywhere trying to find your way, and the search party is looking for you. They get to where you were an hour ago, but you're now over here. They get over there, you're now over here. If you stay put, they will eventually find you. She stayed put. She says, I stayed in my place. And I presumed that they would discover that I was missing. And they would return for me. While I was waiting in my place, sleep got the best of me and I fell asleep. She says, Safwan ibn Mu'aqqal as-Sulami who was from the people of Badr. Uh, Safwan ibn Mu'aqqal as-Sulami was lagging behind the army. And for some reason, he was late. So he was not with the army. And he walked up to my place. He saw the shape of a person sleeping. You know, at a distance, you could just see the shape. He saw the shape of a person sleeping. And when he saw me, he recognized me because he had seen me before the revelation of the ayat concerning hijab. And she removed the, the covering on her face, and she's sleeping. He sees her, she sees him, he recognizes her, because he saw her before the ayat of hijab. And I was woken by his words. He said, لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. You can imagine. This is not a good situation. And he has, you could, you could think of possibly three scenarios. He could leave her there and go back to Medina on his own. 
and then tell the Prophet and then have them come and get her. But who knows what's going to happen to her when she's by herself again. Option two, she, uh, he could just stay there to make sure she's safe and hope that they figure out that she's lost and they come back and find her. And that's not really a good situation. Or option three, he leads her to Medina and makes sure that she's safe. And obviously he chose that last option. That was the wisest decision to make. So she says, I swear by Allah, we did not speak a word to each other, nor did I hear any statement from him except la hawla wa la quwata illa billah. He lowered his camel such that I could ride on it, and when I mounted the camel, he guided it until we caught up with the caravan while they were encamped. So he got her on the camel and he walked with the camel, making sure that she gets safely to their destination. He's not talking to her. All she recalls him saying is, La hawla wa la quwata illa billah. She says, they get to the caravan area where they were encamped. That, she says, is where the rumors started spreading and the people that spread the rumors were destroyed. The leader of them was Abdullah ibn Ubay bin Salul. That's where the rumors started. As soon as they get back to the caravan, they see Safwan ibn Mu'aqal leading her on the camel. Immediately, these people started spreading rumors. That's when it started. Now remember, she's recounting this after the fact. This is after the incident. Now from this, Safwan ibn Mu'aqal radiallahu anhu, the fact that he doesn't utter a word to say that Aisha just says la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah we see his high manners and we see his noble character and his modesty he knew the delicate situation and that he had to be very wise in how he did this he has to protect her he has to ensure her well-being but he also has to do it in a very modest way because this is one of the ummahatul mu'minin one of the wise of the rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam so for whatever reason, he was lagging behind. And when he found her, he had a decision to make. Out of those three possibilities, he chose the wisest one, which is to take her and escort her safely to the caravan. So we also, as we learn about the character of Safwan ibn Mu'aqa, we also learn the character of someone else, Abdullah ibn Ubay. Right? Contrast these two people, a person of nobility and a person of corruption. Abdullah ibn Ubay bin Salul is seeing him return with Sayyidah Aisha and the first thing that happens is he begins spreading rumors. And that is one of the qualities of the munafiqun. One of the qualities of munafiqun is that they love to start rumors even without any cause. Even if they have no reason to, they like to cook them up because they like the drama. They like to spread dissension in the ranks and get people talking and, and fighting and arguing with each other. They love that stuff. And that's exactly what he did. So when others saw Sayyidah Aisha arrive at the campsite, they see her on top of this camel with Safwan ibn Mu'aqal leading it. For the ordinary believers, what do they see? They see a noble Sahabi leading one of the Ummahatul Mu'mineen. They're not in physical contact. He's just making sure she's safe. MashaAllah. What they see is exactly the reality. And they think nothing but the best. They have no reason to suspect that anything happened. 
But Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salu sees something very innocent and puts a spin on it to look for something that's not there. And then he takes that and spreads that as a rumor within the community. This is what we have. We have a contrast between Safwan bin Mu'aqqal and Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salu. So they look for things to spin. And then the believers don't look for things to spin. They take things at face value and just assume the best unless they have concrete evidence stating otherwise. So Sayyidah Aisha continues. So we arrived in Medina, but I fell ill with a fever for a whole month. She fell ill with a fever for a whole month in Medina. She says the inhabitants of Medina were all talking about the slander, but I did not know anything about it. Isn't that so typical? The person who's being spoken about the most is the last one to find out. This one and that one is talking about them. They're sharing this and that, WhatsApp messages. And then the last one to find out is the actual person of interest, the one being talked about. That's so typical. She doesn't find out. She says, I didn't know anything about it. However, I was hurt by the fact that I did not see the same degree of tenderness that I used to see from the Prophet I didn't see that same tenderness when I was sick. He would come inside and he would ask about us and how we're doing, how's everything, but then he would leave. So I had, she said, I had some, I had some feelings, you know, what, what's going on, but I didn't, really, I didn't realize what was going on. She wasn't aware of the slanders, but she was aware of some subtle changes. And this tells you her innocence. She doesn't know what's going on. And you also see the uneasiness of the Prophet ﷺ in this situation because he now knows people are talking about his beloved wife. But what is he supposed to do? In this situation, what is he supposed to do? He knows his wife. He trusts his wife. He has confidence in his wife, but these people are spreading rumors about her. Unconfirmed rumors. But look at the nobility of character from Makarim al-Akhlaq. He doesn't bring it up. Why doesn't he bring it up? She's sick. And from this you learn something important. It's important that we try to avoid giving stressful news to people when they're going through something. If they're sick, or going through a problem, don't add to that problem with more stressful news. Wait for the time when they can handle that, when they're better, or when that difficulty has passed, and then you can give them something that's stressful, but they need to know. So this is from the nobility of his character, postponing those stressful conversations that need to be had. So she says, after I was better after I recovered from my sickness, I went out with Umm Mislah. Who is Umm Mislah? She is the great aunt of Sayyidah Aisha and one of the first cousins of the Prophet because she is uh, Umm Mislah bin Ruham ibn Al-Muttalib. So they're cousins. She says, I went out with Umm Mislah to the area of the Khala. The khala is the area where they would go to relieve themselves. They didn't have public bathrooms back then. And she says, we would only go once every few nights. 
and it was before the time that people started building restrooms close to their homes. So we used to do like the Arabs of old, and we used to disdain building restrooms close to our homes. This was not a typical thing back then. So I went out with Umm Mistah. As we returned to my house, Umm Mistah tripped over a stone. As she tripped, she says, uh, May Mistah fall. Or she said, Qatullah Mistah. So her son, Mistah. So in, Arab, in Arabic, sometimes in old Arabic, people would say that. It's like a curse. You stump your toe. You know, we have it too. It's a little different, but you know, people use curse words when they stump their toe or if they bang their foot or elbow or whatever. So she stumbles and she says, May Mistah fall or you know, may, Allah, uh, may, may Mistah be killed. This is a curse, right? So Sayyidah Aisha was aghast. She didn't like that she said that. She says, what an evil thing you have said. How can you curse a person who has witnessed the battle of Badr? Mustah witnessed Badr. And then, because she's defending him, but then Mustah, she spills the beans. She didn't, Aisha didn't know what was going on, but Umm Mustah knew everything. She knew about the slanders, but she hadn't said anything to Aisha until this moment. Now Aisha is criticizing her for cursing, saying, how can you curse Mustah when he witnessed Badr? And then Umm Mustah replied, my dear child, do you not hear what he is saying about you? You see, because Mustah got caught up in the rumors. He didn't come up with the rumor, but he heard it and it made him uneasy and he went sharing it to this one and to that one. So he is a party to the rumor spreading around the city of Medina. This gets back to his mother, Umm Mistah, and she doesn't like it. So when Aisha mentions this, she says, My dear child, don't you know what that person, Mustah, is saying about you? Aisha had no idea. And so Umm Mistah used this opportunity to fill her in on all of the details of this slander. She tells her the whole story, and this is the first time she's hearing the slander. The hadith says that she returned home. And she got even sicker than she was when she first arrived back in Medina. Remember, she was sick for a whole month before this conversation with Umm Mustah. After she heard the story, she got even sicker than she was before. One narration says that she even fainted when she heard the slander. And she was sick after this incident. So she goes back home and now she's sick again. And while lying in her bed and sick, Sick from the slander and the stress, the Prophet ﷺ comes to the house, he gives her salams and asks her about how she's doing. And she asks him a question. She asks for permission. She says, do you give me permission to go to my parents' house because I want to verify some information? And the Prophet ﷺ gave her permission to go to her parents' home. Who are her parents? Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and Umm Rumman. Abu Bakr and Umm Rumman. So Sayyidah Aisha goes to her parents' house and she goes to ask them about the situation. And there's a lesson here too. Umm Mustah is trustworthy. She told Aisha about the slander. She didn't just take that at face value and run with it. Even though Umm Mustah is trustworthy, she wanted to go verify with other trustworthy people. 
there's some information you can receive from a trustworthy person, and it's enough. But some information is so serious, so severe, that even though you trust that person telling you, you want to check with other people too, just to make sure. And that's exactly what Sayyidah Aisha did. She goes to verify it with her parents, Abu Bakr and Umm Ruman. So she says, I asked my mother, Umm Ruman, my dear mother, what are the people talking about? What are they saying? And her mother, Umm Ruman, says, my dear daughter, be easy on yourself. Relax. She says, Wallahi, it hardly occurs that a wife is so beloved to her husband and she has co-wives except that the co-wives talk about her. That's what she said, trying to calm her down. So Aisha said, Subhanallah, people have actually said this about me. They're actually saying this about me. In Umm Ruman, her mother was quiet. So Sayyidah Aisha says, That night I cried and cried and cried until the morning. She says, My tears could not stop, nor could I taste the sweetness of sleep. There's crying followed by falling asleep out of sheer exhaustion. But this is crying and crying so much that you can't even sleep from the stress. That's what she was going through. After a month of being sick, hearing now for the first time that this is what is being said. You know, we call it the Hadithatul Ifk, the story of the slander. But they are sharing the sordid details of what the Munafiqun were spreading. And I don't even need to repeat what those things are. You know what it's about. So we get to this juncture in the story. She now finds out. We now get to a part in the story where other Sahaba get involved. And at this part of the story, we find the involvement of Usama bin Zayd and Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhuma. Sayyidina Aisha tells in the story that the Prophet sallallahu called for Usama bin Zayd and Ali ibn Abi Talib to ask them about Aisha. What do they say? about Aisha and this slander and what is going on. And we see a response from Usama, and we see a response from Sayyidina Ali, and they're very different responses. From Usama bin Zayd radiallahu anhu, we see a response of sheer loyalty. He says, radiallahu anhu, when asked about Aisha, he said, they cannot be guilty meaning her and Safwan. They cannot be guilty of this. They must be innocent. They are your wives, and we know nothing but good about them. So this exemplifies the state of some of the believers, where they think the best. They're innocent. Why would we have any reason to believe otherwise? When it gets the time for Sayyidina Ali to give his testimony, he says something different. Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu says, Ya Rasulullah, Allah has not restricted matters for you and there are plenty of women besides her. Be very attentive to how he words this and frames it. He says, Ya Rasulullah, Allah has not restricted matters for you 
and there are plenty of women besides her. Ask her maidservant, basically the, the maid, the, you know, the woman who is the khadima, who serves and helps out Aisha with household tasks and other responsibilities. Ask her, that's Barira, ask her, she will confirm what she knows about her. And the Prophet ﷺ did exactly that. He goes to Barira, the Khadima for Aisha, and asks her about Aisha and what she says. Barira says, when she's asked, have you seen anything from her that would cause you to have doubts? She says, by the one who has sent you with truth, I have not seen anything from her that would ever cause me to have doubts about her, except one thing. What is that one thing? She says, she is a young woman. And sometimes she falls asleep when she's kneading the dough for making bread. And when she's asleep, sometimes the lamb comes in and eats all the dough. That's the only thing I have to say that's bad about her. SubhanAllah, she falls asleep and leaves the dough, the lamb eats it, that's it. And how does she get, you know, if you look at what happened, she fell asleep when she was outside of Medina too. So obviously, she's sleeping there, she's sleeping here. That's the only thing that she was blamed for. That's not really a blame. You know, that's, that's illustrating how innocent she was. It's like you say, you know, the only fault is that they're, you know, they don't put the dishes back in the sink or something. You know, it's not really a big deal. So we learn from this that it's important to turn to witnesses and trustworthy people for advice and to get their take on different matters. Now, in the case of the Prophet ﷺ, he is always modeling for us how we respond to things. As wise as you may be, as as much life experience as you have, it's always good to get a second and third opinion. Get advice from other people. Think about those decisions you wanted to make in your life. Those things you needed to handle. And you thought about the best way to approach it. And you think you have a really great idea. You really thought it out. But then you consult with one or two people about it. And they share something that it never occurred to you. And you realize, hmm, there's another way to do this. There's another thing I didn't consider. That's always useful. And we see that here. What we see here also is how the Sahaba are trying to make easy the pain experienced by the Prophet And we see that very much in the response of Sayyidina Ali. And we should pay attention to the way he worded that and what he meant by it. When Sayyidina Ali Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu said, Allah has not restricted the matter for you and there are many women you can marry besides her. He is not saying this uh, out of any kind of animosity or hatred for Sayyidina Aisha. There was none of that. He had a twofold suggestion here. The first suggestion is that, because, let's go back a bit. You know, in Arabic, you can say things indirectly and they're understood. What exactly is implied in that statement? When he says to the Prophet Allah has not restricted matters for you and there are many women, what is the implication of that? 
What is he suggesting by implication? He is suggesting that he divorces her. That's what it implies. You know? If a person's having some issues in marriage and you say to them, there's plenty of fish in the sea, what does it seem like you're saying to them? It seems like you're suggesting divorce, and that's exactly what he is saying here. He's saying, he has twofold, a twofold advice. He's saying, you can divorce her so you can rid yourself of this problem and be at ease until revelation comes, either exonerating her or confirming the truthfulness of these claims. And if she is exonerated, which we feel will be the case, you can always take her back. That's it. But the point here is easing your stress. That's the suggestion. The second part of it is to go talk to Barira and verify the matter by asking her. Because Barira is spending a lot of time with Sayyidah Aisha. As the Khadima serving her needs and helping her with daily household tasks, she's with her day in and day out more than almost anyone. So if anyone can testify to her character and her comings and goings, it would be Barira. Right? This is important to understand because there's a deep lesson in it. We go to the words of Al Imam al Nawawi, Rahimahullah, in his commentary on Sahih Muslim. In his commentary on this hadith, when he gets to this part, he frames the statement of Ali in a very beautiful way. And he says, لأنه رآه مصلحة ونصيحة للنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم في اعتقاده ولم يكن ذلك في نفس الأمر لأنه رأى انزعاج النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم بهذا الأمر وتقلقه فأراد راحة خاطره وكان ذلك أهم من غيره So he says here Imam Nawawi that the position of Imam Ali this suggestion he says it is the correct position to take as far as he is concerned because he saw that suggestion as maslaha, as a benefit and goodwill for the Prophet ﷺ. This is what he believed. And he saw the great pain and stress this rumor caused the Prophet ﷺ and wanted him to be relieved of that stress. And he felt that the way to be relieved of that stress is to divorce her so that you're freed of this issue. And if she's exonerated, it's a single pronouncement. You can take her back and it goes back to normal. Right? That was his viewpoint. And he says, So he's basically saying that the most important thing in all of this is the feelings of the Prophet ﷺ and being relieved of this stress and pressure on him. That was the most important thing. And he felt that that could be done by pronouncing a single divorce, waiting for the, the exoneration, and taking her back if she's exonerated. Or talking to Barira. Now Ibn Hajar rahimahullah, he says in his commentary, in Sahih Bukhari, uh, his commentary, Fath al-Bari, kalam الذي قاله علي حمله عليه ترجيح جانب النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لما رأى عنده من القلق بسبب القول الذي قيل 
وكان صلى الله عليه وسلم شديد الغيرة فرأى علي أنه إذا فارقها سكن ما عنده من القلق بسببها إلى أن يتحقق براءتها فيمكن رجعتها He says that what Ali said was motivated by giving preference for the feelings of the Prophet and wanting to relieve him of this stress and pain that the incident was causing because of what's being said about Sayyidah Aisha. And this is because uh, he had a great sense of ghayra, a great sense of protective jealousy. So this very this pained him greatly. And so Ali felt that if he was to separate from her, that would dissipate and that stress would be removed. And until the exoneration, that would be removed. And once she's exonerated, she can take her back. This is what he said. Now he says from this, you, you learn a benefit. He says, وَيُسْتَفَادُ مِنْهُ إِرْتِكَابُ أَخَفِتْ ضَرَرَيْنِ لِذَهَابِ أَشَدِّهِمَا There's a lesson here that you take the lesser of, of two harms in order to get rid of the greater of the two harms. Because obviously the divorce would be a harm. It's a kind of darar. But in doing that, it would relieve a greater harm, which is this great pain and stress that the rumors have caused the Prophet ﷺ. So this is the reason why Imam Ali uh, took that position. And in Ibn Hajar, it goes on to quote Imam Ibn Abi Jamra, whom he quotes quite often in his commentary. He says, وَقَادَ الشَّيْخْ أَبُو مُحَمَّدْ Ibn Abi Jamra لَمْ يُجْزِمْ عَلِيٌّ بِالْإِشَارَةِ بِفِرَاقِهَا لِأَنَّهُ عَقَّبَ ذَلِكَ بِقَوْلِهِ وَسَلْ وَسَلِنْ جَارِيَا تَصْدُقْكَ فَفَوَّضَ الْأَمْرَ فِي ذَلِكَ إِلَى نَظْرِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ فَكَأَنَّهُ قَالْ إِنْ أَرَدْتَ تَعْجِيلَ الرَّاحَةِ فَفَارِقْهَا وَإِنْ أَرَدْتَ خِلَافَ ذَلِكَ فَابْحَثْ عَنْ حَقِيقَةِ الْأَمْرِ إلى أَنْ تَطَلِّعَ عَلَى بَرَائِتِهَا لِأَنَّهُ كَانَ يَتَحَقَّقُ أَنَّ بَرِيرَ لَا تُخْبِرُهُ إِلَّا بِمَا عَلِمَتْ وَهِيَ لَمْ تَعْلَمْ مِنْ عَائِشَةَ إِلَّا الْبَرَاءَةَ الْمَحْضَاءَ He says, Ibn Abi Jamrah gives a very beautiful point here. He says that when Ali said what he said, he wasn't saying it emphatically as you know, something that must be done. You must divorce her. He's not saying that. Because we see that he adds or ask Barira about her and see what she says. So ask Barira about her. So he gave the choice to the Prophet you could do this or you could do that. So he's simply presenting two options for the Prophet wasallam, And it's as if he said, if you want to hasten this removal of stress, then you can separate from her until she's exonerated. Or if you want, you can go look for the reality by asking someone who knows her very intimately, ask Barira, and you know she'll tell you the truth and she'll tell you about everything. So this is important because we don't want to frame it in an incorrect way and get the impression that uh, Sayyidina Ali has some kind of grudge or animosity and he's saying, ah, just get rid of her. He's not saying it like that. He's looking after the heart of the Prophet He is looking at how can he 
suggest something that would relieve him of stress. Of course he cares about Aisha, but who does he care about more? If it has to be one of the two, he wants him to be relieved of all of this stress. So this is why he says that as a possible option, either this or that. It wasn't out of animosity towards her. He was sure that she would be exonerated, but he's looking after the feelings of the Prophet ﷺ, and what stresses him is stressing him, right? So he is stressed by what is stressing him, right? So inshallah, we're going to conclude here because we're going to pick up in the story where the Prophet ﷺ receives this advice from Ali and then calls a general assembly of the community to address the entire community about the slanders. And then we see what happens until eventually she's exonerated by no less than 20 verses of Qur'an that we'll insha'Allah read and analyze. Wallahu wa rasooluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Alhamdulillah. Any questions? Allah. No, no, no. 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 No, it's neither. Because obviously that advice wasn't taken. But if he had, that would have been a single pronouncement. So there's ruja within the three quru, right? The three months or three menstrual cycles. And there's, you know, at-talaqu maratan, right? So there's three in total. Yeah, for the Ummahat al Mu'mini. If, if, if it was an actual uh, irrevocable talaq, then based on that reading of the verse, well, they're not allowed to get married to anyone else because they're from Ummahat al Mu'mini. But obviously that didn't happen. Mm. Under the bus specifically for the Muslims to know 
this is the monastic. That's the only place of the Imagine yourself of the names of all the monastic countries. Why that target the Usma, barring the Sahaba that made them? حَتَّى لَا يَقُولُوا أَنَّ مُحَامَدًا يَقْتُلُوا أَصْحَابَهِ He wasn't planning to kill him. On the Janazah, he wanted to kill him. That's also what blows my mind. He wanted to kill the Janazah. This is the man who slandered his life. So, I'm just... Abu Lahab was thrown under the bus. One of the things you have to realize about slander is that often it may start with one person but then it spreads and it becomes multiple people and you can't really enforce it so easily once it becomes so widespread. Um, in this case, it all goes back to that phrase that we hear time and time again in the seerah when individuals were doing things like that and some of the sahaba would suggest exactly what you're suggesting. And he would always give the same answer because in the eyes of the other communities outside of Medina, these are all Sahab. And if the impression is given that you become a Muslim and you join that community and this is what happens to you, that can, that can be a huge impediment to spreading Islam and people becoming Muslim. So this is an example of uh, avoiding the greater mafsada. Avoiding the greater harm. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week, inshallah. Yeah, there's there's a hikmah in that as well. Does the father? Kind of a conflict of interest. That's yeah. That's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, it's important to remember. That's why I always keep saying it. Remember, you go to Medina today and you see this large city, sprawling place, millions of people. But back then, remember, the entire city of Medina was contained in the present-day limits within the masjid. So it was a very small town. And if you've ever lived in a small town, you know that news spreads like wildfire and you can't hide anything. You know, people all they know all about your business. So in this case, word spreads, you know, and the slander has a greater impact than it might have if you were in a big city. You're in a big city and someone's slandering you, it's only reaching people in your general circle, not reaching the whole city. But in Medina, it's a small town, it eventually reaches every single ear. And those ears either embrace it or hold it as true, or they, they reject it because they have a good opinion of the person and there's no proof for it whatsoever. So I think that the, the nature of Medina being a small town back then uh, should highlight the severity of it as well and why it has such an impact. 
not just the smallness of the space, but also the one who is slandered. This is not just a random, nameless Muslim woman living in Medina. This is one of the wives of the Prophet And of the wives, the most beloved of them after Khadija. So this is a huge deal. And the believers understood that this is not just about Aisha. This is also something that causes great pain to the Prophet So for a person to spread that slander, there is a lesson for them to be learned. That you cause dissension in the ranks, you cause pain, not just to the slandered, but to the loved ones of the slandered person. So there's more lessons to be drawn from it, inshallah, as we'll see next week. Yeah, I mean, the, the majority did not believe this. Allah Ta'ala says, It was just a, a small group. And as we've said before, uh, the people of Medina, the Sahaba in general, we have sahab, a Sahabi as in, in the broadest sense. Anybody who uh, encountered the Prophet believed in him and died with Iman. That's the broadest definition of Sahabi. But you have the Sabiqun, the Al Awalun, Minal Muhajirin, Wal Ansar. You have Ashab al Badr, the Badriyun. You have Ashab al Ridwan. You have uh, in Medina the Murjifun, right? Wafikum Samma'una Lahum, those who are a bit weak and they lend their ears to the Munafiqun. You have those on the outskirts who don't even come around that much. So when we hear Sahabi, we shouldn't think that every Sahabi is on the maqam of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. It's not true. And we do a disservice to the Sahaba when we render them all like that because then we get into a, an uncomfortable position when we, have, when we see history and certain decisions that were made by people who were from Mutulaqa, people who were given amnesty at the very last moment. You know, we sometimes did things that were quite counter to the values of Islam. Not like what Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu or Sayyidina Umar or Sayyidina uh, Uthman or Sayyidina Ali or the, the Badriyun. So these are Sahaba and they're also getting the tarbiyah through this experience and they come to be perfected and bettered from the experience but they learn from their mistakes. But then you have those who are unnamed who are murjifun, samma'un, people who just, they come around here and there and they spread the rumor. You know, those are of a different class. So.